vaccination with zombies reflects some sort of unquantifiable fear in the back of our mind of some unknown catastrophe taking place, something that could devastate our way of life, something like the the way the Black Plague swept across the world in the 1300s. I said, well, I don't know if that's true, but it sounded pretty good, so I've kind of run with it. And so that satisfied my curiosity. I was content to go back to ignoring zombies until I discovered that The Walking Dead aren't just on AMC. Because according to the Apostle Paul, they are all around us. And in fact, each of us were once among the walking dead. That's actually the beginning of this passage that we're going to spend the next four weeks uh, celebrating and studying. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're going to spend four weeks on ten verses. Because each verse is packed with doctrine and truths theology, and I think most precious, the beauty, grace, and glory of God. Now, amongst other things that we see in these ten verses as we go through them is that it is an incredibly concise explanation and presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you are someone who has difficulty explaining what the gospel is, right, or if you've been in church and you hear people talk about the gospel and you've been afraid to admit, I don't exactly know what that means. Like, it's okay, right? We sometimes use, use certain words in church, and we don't always, we assume you know what it means, but not everybody does. Well, here is the gospel in a nutshell. If you know these 10 verses and what's going on in these 10 verses, you know the gospel. But for all my years of reading it, it was only in the last few years that I really started to appreciate just the richness and and the depth of this passage and all that's going on in there. Because what I found is that as you invest time thinking about what these verses say about God and about you as a believer in Jesus Christ and about your, your glorious future and about your incredible present reality even when the things around you don't seem so pleasant. These verses transform your mindset and your approach to life. This passage speaks of God's tremendous love, His overwhelming mercy, and His glorious grace. And it it invites us to embrace Christ more dearly, to love God more richly, and then it also equips us to share the good news. But it does more. There's just so many layers and depth to this, because in extolling the gospel that saves us by the grace of God, these verses also invite us to apply that grace to ourselves and to other people that we know and interact with. And that is what it means to live by grace, which is our focus over the next four weeks. And so we begin this morning with actually the first half of the passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, 
being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul confronts us here with a very hard truth. We were dead in our sins. Spiritually dead. Even as we were walking around and and seeking and pursuing the pleasures of the world, we were dead. We were the walking dead, spiritual zombies. And we are surrounded even today as we go about in the world by those who are still walking dead who are still spiritual zombies desperately in need of being raised to life by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But the point of this morning's passage is that God's mercy and love cure the walking dead. I'll repeat that. God's mercy and love cure the walking dead. But to really appreciate this, to really say that's more than just an interesting fact, we begin to let it really work into us and and appreciate all that's been done for us and what it means for our life and the importance of sharing it with others. To be affected by this central truth of God's mercy and love, we need to first fully accept and embrace and believe what Paul says. That we've all been the walking dead. And odds are, most of us don't want to think that way about ourselves. But this is the message of verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is not some generic you that Paul is talking about. He is talking about you and me. right? Brian Burdett has walked in sin and trespasses and was dead. You have walked in sin and trespasses and were dead. We have all walked in sin and trespasses and were spiritually dead. We usually hate to admit this, but we were all at one time or another, exactly as Paul says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. You see, we are all naturally selfish. We naturally come wired looking for number one, looking out for us. If you spend enough time around babies, yes, even Tucker as he gets a little bit older, you're going to see it. Or if you spend enough time around children, or teenagers, or young adults, or adults, or senior adults, whoever you want to spend enough time around, if you spend enough time around people, you will see it's true. Even the nicest of people have a selfish streak running right through us. We want what we want, when we want it, the way we want it. We want maximum pleasure and minimum pain. And even when we know that something is wrong to do, isn't it the truth that our mind and our heart have an amazing capacity to come up with excuses why it's okay just this one time? We deserve this. It doesn't really hurt anyone. And even our best moments 
in our natural state are tainted by self-centeredness. Because naturally, even when we do the good deeds in life, usually some part of us is, is really trying to receive some glory, get a pat on the back, project an image about ourselves that may or may not be true, advance a cause. It's painful to admit, but John affirms this in 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, right? if we claim we're not the walking dead, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is the pattern of the world that Paul is talking about, what he calls the course of this world. Our culture, you see, is, is constantly telling us to do exactly the things I've just described, to take what's ours. To look out for number one. That whatever we want, we deserve it. It whispers to us at night, it sings to us, it even screams at us at times to do whatever it is our, our mind and our body is craving. Because it claims that this life is only about maximizing pleasure or happiness. And so the world tempts us to look at things we shouldn't. Do things we shouldn't think things we shouldn't, and, and we do, don't we? Our world says that anybody who says don't do these things is someone who's just closed-minded, intolerant, no fun. And so the world encourages us to live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And so we do. By nature, we do, even when we know it's wrong. Even when we try really hard to resist, and we have a lot of success for a while, eventually our, our home-built defenses break down, and we do. Even when we recognize the hurt that carrying out our desires could inflict on our own lives and our family and our friends, our reputation and the reputation of God, we still crumble and do it. Paul himself describes his personal struggle with this issue, right? Romans 7.15 is a lament that I think we can all share if we're honest. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This propensity towards sin is the walking death that Paul described in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You see, no matter how harmless these passions and desires might seem to us, no matter how good our, our rationalization factory can cook up excuses, if they go against God's perfect will, they are sin. And to pursue them is to follow Satan. That's who Paul describes in verse 2, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so when we follow this course, when we walk in our sins and our trespasses, we are sinning against the perfect and holy God of the universe who made us in His image, who made us to be better than this. As the Almighty Creator of the universe, God is perfect, He is sinless, holy, and He cannot tolerate or permit sin to enter into His presence. And so our sin, whether we call it a big one or whether we call it a small one, there's it's not a biblical category. Sin is sin. Whatever our sin is, it earns His righteous anger. And we should recognize that at times we have each ignored Him 
insulted him and disobeyed him. And so God is right to be angry with us in our natural state. It's this disobedience to God's will that makes every single one of us, when we were in that position, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, American culture makes a huge deal about getting what we deserve. Just want what I deserve. Well, here's what we deserve. God's wrath and eternal separation because of our choice to sin. We deserve spiritual death. No matter how nice, no matter how successful, how charitable, how altruistic, how moral we might be, every single person in their natural state is walking dead because of sin. Spiritual zombies, that's the bad news. And now here's what we need to really remember. We need to remember what it was like to walk this way, to walk in spiritual death. Because many of us here, most of us here, have accepted the good news through Jesus Christ. And our situation is different, as I'm going to describe in just a moment. And so this might not apply to us anymore. And so we need to remember this. Because we need to feel genuine sadness for the horror of those who are shambling around us, who are still spiritually dead, trapped in their sin, and destined to be separated from God forever unless something should change. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have received the cure for walking death, but there are millions around us, including hundreds or thousands in our immediate neighborhoods who need the cure. And we need to care about them, not just be satisfied with our situation. We need to be caring for them because look at verse 2, right? They are still following Satan even when they don't know it. And look at verse 3. This is even more terrifying. They are still children of wrath, even though they don't necessarily believe in what awaits them. Our hearts need to break for them because God's heart breaks for them. This leads us to the good news in the message today. That God loves the walking dead. And I don't mean the TV show. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God passes before Moses and he proclaims his definitive name, his very nature, who he is. This is probably the the best, most succinct, most authoritative definition of God's name and nature in all of Scripture in one single place. Listen to who God says He is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is who God is and all of Scripture testifies to it. He is merciful, full of grace, patient and slow to get angry. He is just and enforces the consequences for sin. But he is overflowing 
with love, steadfast in faith, and he is so quick to forgive us. Each of these attributes of God is on display in Ephesians 2, just these 10 10 verses we see over the next few weeks. We see justice, mercy, love, faithfulness, and most of all, grace. Verse 4 explains that God acted to rescue sinful mankind from death because of the great love with which he loved us. I want you, if you take away nothing else, to truly understand that God loves us. He loves you, and he loves me. And so even when it seems like nobody else in the world might, God loves you, and he always will. He made you in his image. He wants to have a relationship with you. Despite your sins, despite choices we have made when we were living as the walking dead. And he feels that same way about all those out there who are still walking in death. Amidst all of our sin and our rebelliousness and spiritual death, God provided a solution to defeat our sin problem, to resolve his rightful anger towards us. Why? because of his great love with which he loved us. And the solution was to send his eternal son, Jesus the Christ, into our world to live, to preach, to teach, to work miracles, to live a perfect sin-free life, to take our sin upon himself as the perfect sacrifice, sufficient to pay the horrific penalty for all our sin. The Apostle John explains this so well in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest, right? It became apparent, obvious to the world among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Remember Paul's words, we were dead in our sins, but God loves the walking dead. And in his love, he sacrificed his own son to pay for our sin and transform us. This is God's tremendous mercy, which Paul describes in verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even as we were offending God, working against God, rebelling against God, hating God, dead in our sins, and deserved to be dead in our sins, God showed us mercy. We often claim we want what we deserve, but the mercy of God is something we don't deserve. Our sin deserves nothing but the anger and punishment of God, and yet his love and mercy give us far more than we could ever dream of asking for. This is God's mercy that Jesus sacrificed himself and took God's wrath upon himself. That he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, as John explains in 1 John 2.2. 2. For everyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God in his rich mercy forgives our sins and our wrongdoings that we 
surely do not deserve it. Not only are we forgiven, but all who trust in Jesus are made alive by His grace, as verse 5 proclaims, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Grace is the key word here. Grace is the outpouring of God's love and mercy. And grace specifically describes a gift that we don't deserve and can't ever earn. That is the meaning of the word. We can't earn eternal life. No matter how much we might exhaust ourselves trying to be good enough, we will never be good enough. Because the only thing that's good enough is perfect. And we are not. In the midst of that hopeless reality that we could never be good enough stands God's gift of grace. Grace is something we can't earn, but God gives it to us anyway when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. As Romans 10.9 assures us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's grace. When we trust in Jesus Christ and accept the grace of God, we're transformed from the children of wrath, described in verse 3, to the children of God, John celebrates in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, whatever else the world says you are doesn't matter. You are a child of God. We are no longer the living dead. We are eternally alive in Jesus Christ. And once we are made alive with Jesus Christ, we need to realize we're not just saved by grace. We should live by grace. You see, too often in Christian life, we accept Jesus, we receive eternal life, and then we, we come to church on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, but then we pretty much resume living an everyday life outside the church that looks pretty much like everybody else who's shambling around the walking dead. But that's not what our loving Father in heaven has called us to. He has called us to a much better life in Jesus Christ. Because now that we are alive, God has called us to live by grace. See, the gospel doesn't just save us from walking death. If we permit it, it transforms every aspect of our life for the glory of God. Living by grace goes beyond salvation, and it defines how we should view ourselves, how we should relate to others. And we should try to live a life, we need to live a life filled with the grace that we have received because of the abundant mercy of God. With respect to ourselves, the grace of God, we should let it transform every aspect of how we think about ourselves, how we react to our own mistakes and failures. We're in an area full of type A perfectionist achievers, right? Everybody here scrambling to get to the top. And we can be so hard on ourselves when we mess up. But here's the thing. Our salvation didn't come because we cleaned up our act and started being perfect. We didn't earn God's love. He loves us because that's who He is. We didn't earn God's mercy. He is merciful to us because that's who He is. We didn't earn God's grace. He is gracious to us because that's who He is. 
And if we didn't earn God's redeeming, transforming, empowering, enlivening grace, we can't ever unearn it. We are sealed and guaranteed forever, secure in our standing before God and our new identity. And we need to hold firmly to this truth as well. So on the one hand, hold firmly to the truth, God loves you. On the other hand, hold firmly to this truth. Those are two things to take away, if nothing else. Because when we fail, and I guarantee we will, when we fall short of the glory of God, and I guarantee that at some point in our life, we will, the grace of God, living by grace, says we simply need to admit it, confess it to God, receive His forgiveness, and forgive ourselves. See, we can beat ourselves up over failure for years. It can be a burden that we carry out for the rest of our lives. That's not living by grace. Living by grace recognizes that as John writes in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, when we repent and turn away from our sin, God is always faithful to forgive us completely, completely. All gone, our slate is wiped clean. And we need to live by that truth. So if you're carrying a burden today, if there is something from your past that you simply cannot forgive yourself for, something for which you are ashamed or you feel tremendous guilt, I want you to lift that up to God. Confess your mistake and truly know that once you do, He has forgiven you. He doesn't continue to hold it over your head. It is gone from an eternal perspective. And then embrace God's grace and forgive yourself. We must also live by grace in our relationships with other people, with friends and family, parents and children, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, co-workers and fellow Christians. Because I guarantee you that every person in this world who truly matters to you will someday disappoint you, fail you, hurt you. Whether it's on purpose or by accident, it doesn't matter. They're a human being. They will make a mistake. And what we do with that is up to us. We can choose to let that hurt turn into anger, to hold a grudge that eventually lets resentment turn into bitterness. But that's not what we're called to do. Instead, we can choose to live by grace and realize that the gospel is more than just what saves us. It is something that we must let transform our relationships with the other flawed human beings created in the image of God that we relate to. So let us live by grace, so that when others fail us and genuinely ask forgiveness, we can demonstrate it. Demonstrate the forgiveness and grace we've received from God. Let us be quick to forgive, to truly forget, right? Not just be like, oh, sure, I forgive you, and then lord it over them for years to come, throwing it in their face. Let us show, reflect the grace that we've received where it is gone. And if someone doesn't ask forgiveness, we need to remember the patience and the mercy and love of our Heavenly Father who, who has endured all of our offenses and mistakes, and sometimes it took us a really long time to getting around 
and saying we're sorry. And yet God still loves us anyway. While there will always be consequences for sin and for failure, we need to live lives transformed by the gospel, lives that truly forgive, that, that love in the face of disappointment and failure, that, that live by grace. On Tuesday, we celebrate Independence Day. And I certainly hope you have a wonderful celebration. But this morning, we celebrate a freedom that's even greater than what we enjoy in America. Today, we celebrate freedom from sin. Freedom from death. Freedom from Satan. Freedom from wrath. Freedom from recrimination. Freedom from bitterness. This is living by grace. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of Your mercy, Your love, Your compassion, Your grace. We don't deserve it. We didn't deserve it when You gave it to us. And yet Your love and Your mercy transcend all of our wrongdoing. Lord, through faith in Jesus Christ, You have given us eternal life. You have given us forgiveness. You have given us freedom. You've given us transformation, Lord. And so now, Lord, I pray that that grace would work through our lives, that it wouldn't just be something that we talk about on Sundays. It would be something we live to ourselves, to our, our closest loved ones, the ones we can be harshest to. Towards random strangers, Lord, let us be a people who live by grace for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.